Welcome to the Wise Women Diaries podcast. This is where shame and victimhood die. I am a woman that questions everything, so this podcast is a reflection of that. Here we speak on non-mainstream perspectives, like healing our childhood wounds, learning to trust ourselves, the voice of fear versus intuition, and how children are our teachers. We discuss what it looks like to own your power as a woman and step out of the medical paradigm. That's why I am obsessed with interviewing women who trust their bodies and babies in home birth and free birth and their wild journey from maiden to mother. Ultimately, this podcast is for women who want to thrive and have inner peace, learning how to take radical responsibility for their life and shed victimhood for good. Nicole, I really do want you to speak on your offering of raising boys or raising sons first, because we're going to be speaking about you raising four sons. I have this deep knowing of what is possible in motherhood and parenthood, and you are one of the only few that show me that I that I know it's possible. What I believe is possible, I know it's possible. Through you, through your example, how you speak about it, who you are, you show me what I know is possible. That's like my ultimate goal, honestly, is because I think these knowings are really innate. Like women innately know they can have for what they deserve. And yet we have really lost the cultural model for life, but most certainly motherhood. Um, And then our societal structures really don't support motherhood unfolding naturally as a reflection of primal desires. And so if you don't have a model and you don't have the space to figure it out yourself, um, your reality is, can be, uh, feeling like it's at odds with what feels correct. And it's just, it's like a pebble in your shoe. It just feels a little, mm. and yeah. I've definitely been there and I'm still there in plenty of ways, right? But to see someone live out primal coding in motherhood affirms it so that you recognize those calls of your own body and you're like, oh, I know what this is now. And I have some idea of what I might want to do with it. So the Raising Sons workshop is built off of that same concept of there are primal drives within a mother and there are primal drives within boys. And mothers were also little girls, not little boys. And so there's something there of not knowing how to approach them or not having that like intrinsic understanding of their need because you've never had the same needs and it can be intense and they can be big and they're physical and culturally I see like with so many things it kind of goes one of two ways which is either we completely shut down children because their expressions and behaviors and curiosities don't fit in modern structure that was made by adults for adults and so they just don't fit and so we just shut them down so that it fits because it's simpler or 
we try to make the world fit children and adults, namely mothers, often get forgotten, where you then have women betraying their own needs. And so when it comes to boys, I either see that as, you know, they're most often their masculinity is denied, right? Their fierceness is pathologized. Their aggression is medicated. They are. Yeah, I know you're growling right now. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the baby is like, I know what you're saying. Um, Well, yeah, all of those things that are their maleness are just too much for people to digest. And so we find a way to shame it until they begin to deny themselves. But will you will deny them until they get there. Or you have little boys that are really out of control, right? That are not contained and their bigness is running wild and not in a beautiful, wild and free, raising feral kids kind of way, but a like, help, this is so much. I don't know how to contain it. You're not containing it. It feels like chaos is purging from me. And the whole family unit will feel that too. The mother feels like it's chaos. The father feels like it's chaos. The child feels like it's chaos. And masculinity is powerful and it is fierce. But in its greatness, in its highest place, it's also contained and consciously directed. It is something they wield, not that something that they are controlled by. And so in raising boys, you have to, if you're going to raise a great man that is strong enough to hold his own power rather than deny himself power, you have to show little boys what that looks like. They have to have places to practice it and they need their parents, most of all their mother when they're very young because very young boys belong beside their mother. They need her to contain it. They need her to guide it. They need her to channel it, to direct it, and to show him what that looks like. And it's an art form. It's a dance. It's, it's so nuanced. Um, and it's so largely lost. You either have people denying masculinity and claiming it's toxic or watching it chaotically bombard everyone. And both things don't feel good to the boy and to his mother. Can you walk us through a real-life example of helping your sons in those moments contain it Mm -hmm. and guiding them? Yeah. So there are, you know, a big one that you'll see come up is, like, physicality. And sometimes that looks like literally just physically moving their body when they have a feeling. Um, My oldest is very like kinetic he needs to move when he's learning he needs to move when he's feeling he needs to be in his so part of supporting him looks like you know when he and i are in conflict when we have a difference of opinion on how something needs to go or he's you know his behavior is being informed by a feeling but he needs to control it rather than act out like yeah you're frustrated We don't get to punch our brother. That's just not an option. That's misguided aggression. That's energy that's flailing. He's six and a half. I'll talk to him and I'll talk to my four-year-old, not so much my three-year-old, but my four and my six-year-olds. I'll talk plainly. 
your feeling is in your body, so it belongs to you. Because it belongs to you, you're responsible for it. It's okay that you're angry. Anger is so helpful to us. Anger keeps us safe. But if you're trying to avoid feeling how hard it is to hold your anger by pushing it, physically putting it into someone else's body, you're being irresponsible with your own energy. We don't get to do that. It's yours. But I'm your mama. And you're not only responsible for yourself, I'm responsible for you. So I'm going to hold it for you. I am not going to let you hit your brother. But I will let you hit my fist. Or you can scream at me. Or you can go outside and climb. Like I'll offer other options. But I am really clear. Your feeling belongs to you. And that means we don't deny it. It belongs. But we also don't let our feelings control our actions unconsciously. We're responsible for them. And so I hear you that you just got so mad that you just smacked my leg. I also can't allow that to happen. So I'm going to move you to another room. And we're going to deal with this anger until it's small enough for you to hold yourself. Then we can go back to playing with Bear. But I can't let you go play with him right now when you're still this angry. When you're still controlled by your anger because he's just going to get hurt and that hurts both of you and they don't always like it but that's the boundary in our house your your emotions are yours and they're your responsibility plus mine because you're little someday they'll be grown and it won't be my job to do that for them anymore but right now it is yeah and some of the responsibility you take is physically moving them away from each other Mm-hmm. And I intuitively feel that when I'm around kids, because you said in your Instagram story, if you told them stop fighting and they keep fighting, they are not capable. If they were capable, if their brain was capable, they would stop fighting. But if right. they're not capable, it's your responsibility responsibility as a parent to physically separate them because they're not capable of doing it. <clears throat> yeah. And I used to, like when I first had Owen, earlier on in my motherhood, I was so, I was so afraid of violating his bodily autonomy. I was so afraid of violating his consent that I would just give so many chances. But really, when I was giving so many chances, I was giving him so much power. I was giving him so much responsibility, more than is comfortable for him to hold. Little brains are doing so much. They are learning and growing and expanding and integrating information at a rate that if adults were to do it, we would be nauseated. I can't imagine revisiting what that feels like. If I were to match that amount of growth and power today, I wouldn't be able to do anything else, right? I wouldn't be able to maintain my responsibilities if my internal landscape was so so dynamic. I would only be able to have responsibility over myself if that. And so when you give your children so much power and so much agency, you're handing them so much responsibility. And the fact is sometimes it's more than they can hold responsibly. And that doesn't feel good to them either. It doesn't feel good to be handed a task you have no chance of completing. It doesn't feel good to be holding a really massive feeling by yourself and then to have your parent essentially refusing to hold it with you. 
misbehavior, behavior that is informed by sensation and isn't moving through any kind of like gatekeeping of the mind, which is toddlerhood. That is small childhood. It is emotion to action without cerebral gatekeeping. There are times where that feels good because you're just the highway of like expressing and processing your feeling is instant. And there's lots, there's lots of medicine there for adults to reclaim that and to give yourself spaces to do that. But if you purely exist in that, it's chaotic. And you feel out of control. And for a child, they will feel out of control and they have no hope of regaining it on their own. They are dependent on us to inform them, to guide them, to hold them. If they could hold themselves, they would. I think about this oftentimes. Humans, if you were to compare us to other animals, other mammals, and even other primates, we parent more and for longer than any other animal on earth. Other primates might still continue living in social groups, but when it comes to proximity of child to mother and the innate moving through life as one, we do that for way longer than anyone else. We need to because we are highly complex social creatures in a way that no other animal is. Our children need more time to learn from us because there's more to learn. We still have to operate in groups. We still have an intrinsic desire for hierarchy, especially boys, in a way that girls don't need as much. And yet, we, this like modern movement of gentle or respectful parenting can be kind of hands-off in a way that is overly vulnerable. Our children want us to guide them. That's why we're here. If they didn't need us, we wouldn't have societal structures that are reflective of nature. It's gotten wacky in a lot of ways, but our societal structures are still in ways informed by nature. And the fact that our children stay with us for years maybe not even 18, but through teenagehood, through puberty, that's because they need us. It is my job as their mother to guide them and and to hold them and to inform them. I'm doing them a disservice if I refuse to accept that responsibility because I'm afraid to be an authority, which I think is a really common fear. It's definitely one I used to have. Yeah, so how do you explain being their authority figure because you are, but without this normal level of control or the parent being like God? Right, right. And I think that's, so in my experience, and I've seen it in lots of other women in conversations or in my work, but I'll just speak to my personal experience was authority when I was a child was not inherently safe authority, the authority figures in my life, and therefore the concept of authority was not responsive to and informed by me, right? Authority was separate from me and was imposed upon me. And so I took on the concept that authority causes harm. So when I arrived to motherhood, I had all these preconceived ideas of like, oh, I'm not going to be an authority because I'm not going to harm my child. 
And then it was a few years before Owen's behavior was screaming at me like, good God, someone be in charge. And so in my fear of harming him the way that I feel I was harmed as a child, I was withholding a basic need. And I had to pivot really hard because I had to completely reconstruct authority as scaffolding, as a gift, as an offering, as a haven where my child can rest because I'm in control, where he can just do the work of exploring and growing and being curious and forming relationships and feeling his body and touching the earth because I'm in control of everything else. It's not a concern for him. And you know, if you look at it, no one hesitates to keep their kids safe. But safety should not be the only place we're willing to be an authority. Everyone is like, no one would be like, well, I don't make my kid wear a seatbelt because I don't want to violate his body autonomy. Right? Yeah. Everyone is like, well, we, I don't let my kid run into the street just because he decides he wants to run into the street. We have to keep them safe. Of course we have to keep them safe, but that's not our only job as parents. That's a massive part of it, but is it our only job? Or do we have to teach them how to be human? Humans aren't just safe, they're social, they're vulnerable, they're trusting, they're generous, they're connected. They're inherently a part of a group. We have to learn how to be a part of a group, especially because if you were to look at developmentally, the child's brain is not wired for being a healthy part of a group. (laughs) Children are so deliciously selfish and self-centered. Their brain literally cannot, cannot, be putting someone else's needs above their own. And so it's something that can become particularly clear when you mother multiple children, is if I didn't teach them how to be a group, whose needs would be reflected in the home? Only Owen, because he's the strongest one. If I let them all Lord of the Fly style settle things, Milo and Noah and Liam would be at such a painful disadvantage. And what would that program them for? That would program them for relationships that do not reflect their needs. How is that any different than how I interpreted authority, which is my relationships do not reflect my needs? So the way that you do it in a way that's not harmful is you Allow your child to inform your decisions, but not to decide them for you. So my authority is informed by my children. I am so intimately aware of them. I am so attuned to them. And then I trust myself. I was given the responsibility of being their mother. My judgment must be enough. I must be capable of making decisions in service of them. I don't have to ask their permission. They already gave it by coming here. And if I were to only make decisions that my child already feels is good for them, well, then they would be capable of making decisions themselves. They aren't. They're little. And there will be a process of handing over that responsibility, right? Right now, we share responsibility of their life. My six-year-old is 
sharing responsibility for his life. And he has way more responsibility of himself than my three-year-old. Or of Liam, who's a baby. (laughs) What responsibility does Liam have over himself? Almost none. Noah has a little more. Milo has a little more. Owen has a little more. And it'll be a process of (laughs) of reconfiguring what authority looks like in relation to my child as they grow so that I am not holding more responsibility than belongs to me as they get older. I would not be... Do <laughs> you feel very proud of yourself? <laughs> I would not be parenting my teenager with as much authority as I do my six-year-old. Because then I'm, I am oppressing their right to decide and explore. They are at the point developmentally where they need to have, be exploring those edges of responsibility because they're about to take it all themselves. But for little children, especially in that first plane of development, so before six, seven, it just doesn't belong to them. If they could make good decisions, they would. And they can't, and that's not their fault, but it doesn't mean we don't have anyone making good decisions. They don't even want that. The chaos, that if I were to sit back and to let my children fight it out as much as they want to, and not to say sometimes I don't, sometimes I let them like suss some things out when I'm there and I can make sure it doesn't get too big or whatnot. But if I were to give them free reign, they would be hurting all the time. Not even just physically, they would be hurting each other's feelings constantly. And they would be, again, programmed for relationships that hurt. What kind of marriage is my child going to choose if that's what they expect love to be? The family unit is our foundational imprint of love, belonging, safety, connection, worth, the ability to give safely because you have an ability to receive in safety. I have to show them how to do that responsibly or they'll go out and they'll have relationships that are irresponsible and that drain their resources and are imbalanced energetically and hurt them. And I think about that a lot. What kind of what kind of marriage will my child choose if I teach them that love is chaotic and takes as much as it can and isn't informed by you? Your relationships should be informed by you. They should be reflective of you and your needs. And you should not settle for any relationship, a marriage, a girlfriend, a friendship that doesn't take you into account. And I think that's where authority over the last couple generations has really gone wrong, is authority wasn't taking into account who they have authority over. And I think about this a lot in raising boys and in speaking to my sons about their role as men someday. Good leaders are not the dictators that are imposing their will upon the masses. Good leaders are highly attuned and highly responsive. Good leaders are the ones, and I can't think of a single real world example, but (laughs) they've existed before, I'm sure. A good leader is one that looks at their people and attunes to their needs 
and takes bold action in service of those. It's a, leadership is a position of service. If my boys are to do that someday for themselves, for their wives, for their children, they need to know what it's like to be on the other side of the coin. They need to know what it's like to be safely and lovingly led. They need to know what it's like to receive it. And they also need to see a model of what it's like to be the leader. And I yeah, think can, about- can you, I, I love when you say real life examples of mm-hmm. leadership because I feel like that's what allows people to like really see it if they can't be in person with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do you want to maybe like a physical, when your boys are being so physical or maybe if they you know, are saying mean words to each other, how does that look for your house? Yeah. That will look like another big one that comes up is um, if they're making decisions that will quickly under-resource them, right? If they're spending their resources really quickly. So if they're hungry or thirsty or tired, but they want to keep playing or they want to keep being out. And we start to see spaces that they're under-resourced. Everyone's really hungry, and so everyone's getting kind of snippy. And people are playing, but they're not playing very nicely anymore. And this game is new, and it's imaginative, and it's exciting. And mom, can we tell you what the rules are, though? It's so fun. I hear you that it's so fun. It sounds like it has the potential for fun. I believe you about the potential for fun. I also see that you're maybe not having a lot of fun with it because what I see is Milo called you a name and then you took the toy to punish him and you're kind of making the rules for the game, but Milo's not getting to share his opinions and everyone's getting pretty heated about it. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to hit pause on the game because the game is cool. Because we care about the game, we're going to protect the fun of the game by not running it into the ground. So here's what that's going to look like. Everyone put the toys down right where they are. Oh, no, no one's going to touch them. No one's going to move them. We're even going to shut the door so Liam can't come and get it. It's going to be safe. It's like hitting pause on an episode a little bit, okay? We're just pausing. Freeze frame. But then we're all going to go into the kitchen, and we're going to make afternoon smoothie, okay? I really think that everyone's going to feel better if they get a little bit of nourishment. We're going to try that and see how we feel. And if everyone after feels better, like I think we will, you guys can go right back to the game. There's nothing else we have to do today. But I love you and I love Milo and I love watching you guys have fun together. And I wouldn't be doing my job if I sat here and watched you guys beat each other up instead. But it's, I don't want to and we're going to lose the chance. And we actually needed the sun to be on the left side of the yard to do. And I hear you. I hear you. Let's go really quick. Or I hear you. We're doing this anyway. Keeping you guys safe means not just protecting your bodies, but protecting your hearts. Right now, you guys are not protecting each other's heart well. So it's my job to do it for you. We are going inside for a snack and then we will try again. And if I have to, I'll scoop them up. But usually I don't at this point. They're old enough and we've had this conversation enough times that my four-year-old and my six-year-old remember. My three-year-old maybe doesn't. Maybe I pick him up kicking and screaming and I plop him on the counter and he gets to be the one to press the blender button and we move on. 
but it is a balance of informing them of how I'm making my decisions so that they understand it and they can trust it. They know I'm not just randomly being like, game over, snack time. Like that would feel weird and confusing. They know why I'm doing it. They maybe still disagree with me. That's okay. I'm going to just show them again and again that my decision making is sound by making those decisions. And then you know what? They have the snack. They feel better. They go, oh, I do feel nourished. I don't feel so angry. I feel better. Thanks, mom. Great, guys. And will they forget later? Yes. Will they get hungry and beat each other later? Yes. Absolutely. But eventually, over the course of like hundreds of repetitions over the years of their childhood, they will get it. And someday, maybe when they're 12, maybe when they're 22, they're going to notice they're really grouchy to someone and they need a snack. And I won't be there to tell them to go to the kitchen, but I bet they'll walk themselves. Yep. It's not about changing behavior that day or in that moment. It's about 15 years down the line, 15 years down the line where they are in their full sovereignty and they can make those decisions themselves. Yeah. Can you go take care of yourself? Because you watched me take care of you. Do you know what that looks like? Do you know what that means? To be cared for. Yeah, and as their leader, you are attuning to their dysregulation. It's from blood sugar, you know, low blood sugar, or, you know, someone didn't sleep that previous night or whatever. Mm -hmm. Like you, you are attuned, you know, you are their leader, and you verbally guide them because their brain is incapable of understanding that, but yours isn't. Yeah, Yeah, they can't manage all the moving pieces. They're, their system, their body as a system, has so many moving pieces between the physical needs of hunger and sleep and movement and sunshine and appropriate relationships to light and energetic nourishment and emotions and somatic work. Like there's so much to being a human and you're responsible for it. You're responsible for yourself. But they can't hold all of those pieces. It's just too much. One, because they haven't practiced it yet, right? There are so many, and I think adults forget this, there are so many bits about taking care of ourselves that we don't even realize we're doing anymore because it's automatic. But it's only automatic because we've practiced it. A child might instead be in the position to sit down and use their brain to think about hunger cues. What a bizarre thing to expect a child to do. What kind of concept do they have of that? It's like a foreign language. If someone were to have me sit down at a table and like list out my hunger cues, I don't even know what I would say. Right? But I know how to manage my own hunger. Yeah, normal parenting, like mainstream parenting is what I call it, or ego parenting is Hmm. um, constant expectation of this little being that is so egocentric and you know does not it just is learning how to be human but has the expectations of you should know how to be a human so with a constant expectation it's constant disappointment and what I love about you is that your expectations are so on par with reality which is why 
you're not disappointed like as often as normal parents. <laughs> yeah, it definitely comes up, but like yeah. it is, it is a muscle to work too. Of like, yeah, not taking it personally when your child isn't capable of something. And I think, I think if you sit with it enough, a lot of people would find that the reason why that feels personal is because there's an injustice there that you were expected of something you can't do. And there's moments of like, that's not fair that they get to have something I didn't get to have. It's your own kid. But I've absolutely, it sounds silly. I could shame myself for having this feeling, but I've had moments where I'm able to connect with that tiny little child part of me that is heartbroken at what my at watching my child receive what she did not receive there have been times where I'm holding a crying baby and I'm just holding and holding and holding and no part of my motherly self is turning away is there a part of my one-year-old self that is jealous watching this baby Liam be held when I wasn't held yep and if I'm not aware of her or if I neglect her the way that she's been neglected I might interpret that my like adult self my mother self might interpret that as like this is incorrect or I'm upset right it's gonna just feel like upset but you can mostly usually trace it back to hurt and longing and grief and jealousy, the sense of injustice at watching a child get what you didn't get to have. And is your adult self jealous of your child? No, your adult self is grateful that you're able to do this for your child and like, you know, whatever. But that piece of you, that piece of you is still there and still alive and still has a voice and is still mm-hmm. felt by you as a person. And so, In that, mothering isn't just mothering our children, but it is the invitation to mother yourself in real time. Hi. I was thinking he's, he's probably like, mama's not giving me the eye contact she's normally giving me. Mm-hmm. Hey? I know. And his brothers are gone to meet that need too. Which Uh-oh. is an interesting yeah. thing to know. Yeah. Like there's like, he gets his needs met by a whole group of people. He doesn't know what to do when they're gone. Yeah. Um, actually, I was going to ask you, how does connection look with a toddler versus a six-year-old? Eye contact is always a part of it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I make a really big point, and it's, it's something I have to do intentionally with four children. But I choose to look my children in the eye when they're speaking to me every possible opportunity. Someone's always speaking to me, and sometimes I have to, like, look at the onion I'm cutting so I don't cut my fingers, and then I'm just listening, but I'm not looking, right? Um, But as much as possible, I'm going to turn and face them when they're speaking to me, and that's honestly probably my number one way of maintaining connection and attunement with them is just making sure I'm looking at them enough. It's so easy to look at everything else. Um, But so for, you know... Like a baby or a toddler versus a six-year-old, there's a pretty big shift that happens at three. So Noah is on the threshold of that. He just turned three a couple weeks ago. Um, And he's bigger. And he's older. 
and his questions are different and his mind organizes information in different ways. And he is now a little more available to go be one of the big boys than he was. Previously to that, um, especially from like age two to three, Noah wanted to go be a big boy, but he wasn't yet. If I gave Noah the choice, Noah would walk away from Mama and go be with his big brothers 98% of the time. But then Noah wasn't getting some of his needs met. Where I noticed he was kind of agitated with me, or really agitated with me, and quick to um, like fight with me and like over engaging with me, right? He was just upset with me a lot of the time. And it was really representative. I realized I needed to pull him closer. I realized, you know, with my oldest. As he moves away from me, that's 100% informed by him because there was no one else tempting him. Noah's dance of separation with me, not that he's separated, but this initial dance of separation and individualizing was not just informed by him and me. It was also informed by Owen and Milo because he really wanted to go hang out. And so from that two to three, I had to make a really big effort to pull him into me and invite him in, even when he maybe naturally would have walked off. So that would look like everyone's about to walk outside, but I'm going to entice him. Okay, Noah, you want to make muffins? Like, I know you're my boy who cooks. Do you want to come make muffins with me? Or do you want to come read a book with me? Or do you want to, you know, whatever it may be. Do you want to make tea with me? Do you want to help me with Liam? Do you want to take, do you want to come watch a cooking video? Do you want to, I was going to make a grocery list. Let's talk about what we should put on it, right? where I'm pulling him into my sphere intentionally and often because he's tempted to leave it prematurely. Um, and I didn't have that experience with Owen and Milo in the same way because Owen didn't have anyone else to go chase. And then Milo would have chased Owen, but Owen was so little, Owen was still in my sphere. Owen was barely two when Milo was born. And so... They, they were both being held by mama. It's Noah is my first boy who has older brothers who are in a different place developmentally that he isn't necessarily in. And I have to like slowly feed him into that rather than letting him fling himself beyond his like zone yeah. of tolerance really. Yeah, let's get into boundaries now because I do kind of feel like you are the boundary queen because <laughs> you understand authority in a very, very healthy, healthy way. But with boundaries in our current society, I feel like it's very used to try to control other people. Mm-hmm. And when you're trying to teach boundaries to a child, <clears throat> how are you teaching boundaries? But with a child understanding that the other person has agency and they can they can choose whatever they choose. Yeah. Yeah. It's tricky. The, the last like pill that was hard to swallow for me when it came to reworking how I did boundaries in my motherhood was the reality that sometimes I am controlling them, right? That when I'm picking them up and moving them, I am controlling their action. I am, I am saying I have more control here than you do. And I think the way I soften that, but I don't want them to think that that's like what people get to do to you or that you have the authority to go do that to other people. And 
for me, a lot of that came in my desire to never treat my children as if they're less than adults, right? But where I landed eventually was that my children are of equal value, but not necessarily equal to me. They're of equal value, but they're not the same as adults. And so they don't have the same agency and they don't have the same autonomy because they can't hold the same responsibility over it. And that's just a fact. And, and yet I'm never going to allow myself to mean that I treat them with less respect or less value. It doesn't mean that I get to exert my will all silly nilly all over them in their lives. And so part of that is being highly discerning in where and how I'm setting boundaries, right? I'm not going to set a boundary when they just make a decision I don't like, but it's fine, right? Being able to tell the difference between a decision that I wouldn't make, but maybe is an okay decision to make. This might look like, um, like an easy one is like how they might arrange food, right? Or how they eat food. Milo will take apart a sandwich and eat every piece. I don't know why. It's not how anyone else around him does it. He eats all of it. He nourishes his body. Like, I don't need to control the way a sandwich arrives to his mouth. Whatever desire I would have to do that isn't rooted in need. Not reflective of his personal needs, his safety needs, or the needs of the group. And so if a boundary is being set that's not reflective of individual needs or the need of the group... That boundary is probably reflected of me and my own ego and my own desire. And that's one that I then sit with. When it comes to boundaries about safety, individual, or of the group, and safety not just meaning physical safety, safety meaning heart wellness, boundaries in service of our family, I will set those even if it violates your own personal choice. I let them slip up plenty right? They, they also get to explore and make mistakes and slip up. Um, and I'm never like helicopter parenting where I'm preventing mistakes from happening in the first place, but I am going to pause and guide you through repair when they do happen. We're never going to leave decisions unintegrated, especially if they're things like speaking unkindly to one another um, or damaging our house, right? So the boundaries that I set too, the other piece is having them be reflective of value. It is a family value that we respect and care for our home. That means it is against our family values to color on the walls, to throw dishes when we're upset, to step on books or tear out pages when we're upset. Like that is not respecting our home. Respecting our home is important. Respecting our home matters to us because our home in turn cares for us and the way that we treat it will be reflective in how it treats us. Like, and I talked to them about this, but those conversations are happening outside of boundary setting too. And I think that's the big piece of those moments where I am in control more than they are in control can be tolerable because there's so much context. Because I'm mothering and setting boundaries from a place of value, it's the same as how we're living from a place of value. We talk about treating our home well every time we clean up, and we do that multiple times a day. 
just this morning. So, okay, here's a great example. Just this morning, I asked Owen if he would be available to vacuum the playroom because I had other things going on this morning, but it needs to be done. He had already vacuumed the living room and the kitchen, and he first goes, no, I don't think I can do that because that was so much work doing the other two rooms already. And I said, oh, okay. Hmm. It does need to be done. And he goes, well, what are you going to do if I don't do it? I said, honestly, it'll probably just not get done. I really don't have the time to do it this morning. He goes, well, would you have time to do it? Because I already did the other two rooms. Usually you vacuum all the rooms, but I already did most of them. So would you be able to do the last one? And I was like, a super solid question. But honestly, no, I don't have the time. I won't be able to do that today. So it would just go undone. And I, but I like, I'm not forcing him to. Did I want him to vacuum the playroom still? 100%. Could I have been like, well, we're not going in the playroom until you vacuum it. Or you're not going to your dad's until you do it. I could have made a whole bunch of things if I wanted to. Is the vacuuming the playroom all that serious? No. But does it matter to me? Yeah. So I just let him sit with it. I trust him. And he sits there and he goes, it is better to have a clean house. It feels better. I said, it does, typically. I know that you've noticed that. A lot of the time you resist doing the work because it's hard, but I do notice you feeling grateful when it's done. He goes, I'm trying to decide if it's worth it right now. I was like, okay. What are you thinking? He goes, I'll just do it. It won't take that long. It'll feel really good to walk. He goes, the next time I want to play in there, it's going to feel good that I already did it. And I bet in that moment, I'm going to be like, man, I'm so capable. And he goes, and also when I'm done, I bet you're going to be impressed with how much cleaning I did. And you'll feel grateful that I did it. I was like, already do, buddy. Thanks. Like, and he went and he vacuumed the playroom and he put the vacuum away and he did come to me. He's like, I vacuumed the whole house. And as soon as I get to dad's house, I'm going to tell him that I vacuumed every room today. And when Nana comes this afternoon, I'm going to tell her because Nana loves vacuuming and she's going to think it's really cool that I'm so good at it. Awesome. Thank you. Confidence. Right. So, like, so I established family values enough that I am encouraging my children to make the decisions I want them to make, and I don't have to force it as much. That's the other piece. If I were more lazy about parenting from a place of value the rest of the time, my boundaries might feel empty, and I'm also going to be needing to set them more often. Yeah, and just having the family value conversation every time around like pain points or dysregulation yeah. is not fun for anyone. And then family values become like, wah, wah. <laughs> yeah, right. If you're going to not, you're going to reject them. If being taught about your family values feels like a criticism because you were acting outside of value, you're going to feel shamed, you're going to feel rejected, and you're also going to then in turn reject the unit that is rejecting you, which is your family and your system of values. And in that, our children are going to be losing their sense of place in the home and in the family. Our values and us all holding each other accountable to operate from them is our sense of belonging. By choosing not to set boundaries with my children, I take away their right to belonging because they don't know how to belong or they don't feel safe belonging, right? There's a whole, there's so many layers caught up in that. 
but in being really intentional about our values and in choosing to, yeah, we constantly visit them, constantly visit them. When it comes to how we talk to one another, words are spells. They're magic. It creates. You create your life by your thoughts and your feelings and your words. You are creating life. It responds to you. And so, you know, for example, Owen might go through this one a lot where Owen can often work with a story of victimhood where people aren't being nice to me. Okay. That can be a big one for Owen. Owen is also the most consistently unkind with his words. And those two things are connected in both ways. Owen is unkind with his words because he feels people are not kind enough to him and people are not kind enough for his liking because he is so unkind with his voice. And so I draw attention to that for him. Buddy, you create your own life. You want to feel closer to people? You need to seed that. Here's what that looks like. And the boundaries might come into play like, hey, but guess what? You're six and you're not solely responsible for your life I'm responsible with you and I've told him this for example you know let's say just a few days ago he was really mad at Milo and for a really good reason Milo had done something that that was legitimately upsetting and incorrect but Owen's response to that was to consistently say something snotty or unkind to Milo with such apathy it was just breaking little bear's heart And Owen's only response was to repeat it. Now, why Owen was doing this? Because he was exerting power over Milo. Because Milo had made a decision that made Owen feel powerless. He wanted to return to a state of power. And it's messy to untangle what does it feel like to be powerful if I'm not having power over someone. Power looks like having power over yourself, not others. And so it's reflecting to Owen all of that. Hey, I understand that he did that thing to your toy and it really upset you and you couldn't even stop him and it just happened. And I understand that maybe right now you're wanting to hurt his feelings like he hurt yours or to feel strong like you could hurt his feelings if you wanted to. I also know that if you continue talking to your brother like that, Not only is it going to affect the rest of the day you have together, but those things come back to you, bub, one way or another. And right now, in this jagged, hard language that you're putting out, you're building up a wall around your heart. You often feel like you're not getting enough love. Your words are closing, not opening. So here's the deal. I love you enough to help you hold your heart open. I'm going to take you into the kitchen with me. We're walking away from Milo. You no longer have the opportunity to speak to him at all because you're not being responsible with how you're talking. And I understand why you're feeling that way. But it's not ultimately a great choice. And I love you too much to watch you make that kind of decision. So we get up and we leave. And he calms down. And he tells me awful things about Milo or whatever it is, right? Like maybe he still gets that out. But he doesn't go back to be being in relationship with his brother like the practice of relationship with his brother until he's able to show up to it better. I'm going to walk with him. We're going to, maybe we're doing an activity in the kitchen. This is what happened the other day. We're doing an activity in the kitchen was how I pulled Owen out of it. Um, And it was to come and make chocolate milk with me. And then when it's done, 
hey, why don't you take out three cups? I bet Milo and Noah would like some too. Here, why don't you be the one to pour it? Hey, go get your brothers so you can serve them. Now, does Owen realize that I forced him to serve someone that he was angry at, thus dissolving the wall he had built between them? No. But he did it. And Milo said, thank you. And then Milo took a drink, and then Milo said, sorry. And Owen said, I hear you're sorry. I'm not ready to apologize to you yet. (laughs) And it made Milo cry because he he wanted it to be done right but by the time they were done drinking milk he said sorry i'm sorry i said i hated you i obviously don't hate you but i was really mad at you i still feel kind of mad at you but i'm done pretending i hate you but they needed the invitation to go through that process separately milo isn't responsible for owen's feelings ever It is never Milo's responsibility to hold Owen's feelings with him. It's mine to hold it with him. And so that's a boundary that gets set often around here is making sure that the children aren't raising children. Right? And that's something you get to do when they're adults. Absolutely. I bet you all my dollars I ever make in my life that there will be times where Owen calls Milo to hold space for him emotionally. But that's not their job right now. And the practice of children holding children is what you get when you're afraid to set boundaries around how children treat other children. And I see so often people hesitate to set those boundaries because, well, it's okay to be angry and it's okay to say, hurtful things if it's how you're feeling and it's okay to yell and it's okay to hit and it's okay to kick and it's okay to scream. Of course, of course, moving emotion, moving sensation through our body is okay. But children shouldn't be doing that process together. They, they literally, the whole point is that they literally can't even do it themselves, which is why they're hitting and kicking and screaming. And you're going to have another child hold space for that. They can't do that at all. The whole point is they can't do it themselves, so they can't do it for one another. But I do talk to them about why that's happening and why those boundaries are being set. And it, and it, I am honest. Like, you're angry right now, but I know you love your brother, and I love you too much to watch you damage your relationship today. More walking out of the room. Um, and a big one is like, we're going to just pause, right? In their physical conflicts or when they get into spats where they just argue back and forth and back. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. We have a rule that when mom says pause, you pause. You put your hands down. You close your mouth. You step away. You pause because conflicts will not get smaller if you're actively making them bigger. I tell them this all the time. It's not going to get smaller if you guys are building it at the same time. So we're going to pause, and that's going to give us the opportunity to resolve this. So how? what do you speak to a mother that is trying to get into her authority where she says pause or sets a boundary or says, no, it's a hard line, no. You know, kids just keep 
nagging, nagging, chipping, boom, trigger, trigger, and she caves, right? Because it it feels like you know how to hold your no, your boundary. What do you say to moms trying to figure that out? I think it's mostly rooted in trust of yourself and your role as the mother, that you get to enforce the boundary. You get to hold it. And with that trust comes the knowing and the faith that by setting boundaries, you are helping your children, not harming them. It becomes undeniable. When I decide a boundary is going to be set, it is ironclad and I will see it through. Of course, my children push back sometimes. Sometimes Owen is running his mouth in such harmful words towards Milo and won't stop and is talking over me to keep saying mean things and is so angry and cannot see outside of it and cannot not only can't make good decisions about what to do, but can't even make the good decision to stop and do nothing. I will put down my baby. I will pick up my six and a half year old and I will carry him kicking and screaming to the other room. I will set him down, I will shut the door, and I will tell him, you must be so out of your mind angry if you can't even pause. I'm going to pause for you. That's why we're here. And sometimes, you know, sometimes I can't sit in there with him because I have three other children. And it's, hey, listen, I left Liam in the other room so that I could carry you safely, and I can't leave him. So I'm going to walk out of here. You can scream, you can kick, you can do whatever you need. I'm going to be back in like two minutes to help you. Right now I have to go get Liam to make sure he's still safe. And I walk out and I shut the door. And he doesn't come out of that door until he's ready to stop saying awful things. And I'm not leaving him in there alone. I'm going to go gather the baby and I'm going to bring Liam in there. And I'm going to sit with Liam and Owen until he's ready, right? The idea that you only set boundaries as a mother when your child gives you permission to set them that's not boundaries. That's still the child being in control. If you are asking, and that's what it is, it is subtly asking your child's permission to parent them rather than parenting them. You're still giving them the responsibility over their life and over how much help they receive. I know I've had the experience in my life, even as an adult, where like, you're upset and you go to like push against support instead of accepting it. Right? It's like the wounded animal. Our children do that too. It's not a kindness to them to give them choice over whether or not they have parents parenting them. To be parented, to be guided, to be held, to be accepted, to be seen in your fullness and your expression and your dark, heavy shit, and to have someone there that goes, this isn't too much for us to work with. What a gift. The ultimate gift. I I know so many adults that would do anything to go back and give that to their own childhoods, to their own selves. And I think there's a subtle but really, really important distinction between the gentle parenting movement, right? And I know a lot of people are like, if you think gentle parenting doesn't have boundaries, you're misunderstanding it. 
Yet there also is a lot of gentle parenting language and media that, and content that is created that isn't boundaried and does give an inappropriate amount of responsibility to the child. It's not a kindness to our kids to put them in control. They're not ready to be in control. They're just not. And it's great. It is so great that there's a big conversation around not shaming our children for their feelings or their expression or their actions. The rejection of shame is awesome. But saying, hey, that feeling's not too big to feel is like the first part. The second part is, let's work with that feeling. Because if it's just you're allowed to feel, you're going to feel attacked by emotion. Yeah. You are still going to feel like, okay, it's technically okay for me to feel this, but it's so big I'm being eaten alive. I'm being swallowed up. Yep. You're going to be an adult who maybe was told you could always be angry, but still doesn't know what to do with your anger, still feels controlled by your anger in that sense. And that's a really important piece for me in raising men is men are powerful. Men have a lot of power in our world. If I'm going to create boys, raise boys that go on to create a world that is healthier than the one that I was born into, they're going to need to be very strong and powerful to do it. If I'm going to raise boys that become men that go against the grain and create new, beautiful things for their families and their children and their communities, they're going to need to be strong. They're going to need to be willing to fight and stand for what is correct in their own innate sense of what that is. That means they're going to need to stay connected to the depth of their emotion and their feeling. They're going to need to stay connected to the rage that comes with injustice. I want them to grow into adults who know that feels right and that feels wrong. And I am willing to feel big feelings about it. They also if they're going to be effective husbands, effective fathers, effective friend, brother, man, they're going to need to be in control. I don't ever seek to dim their power. I seek to craft their control to match it. And that looks like feel your anger, stomp, scream, threaten to start a war, whatever you need to do. And then here's how we're going to actually work with that. Here's what it looks like to take responsibility for it. Here's what it looks like to direct yourself, to contain yourself. And I model it. I expect it of them, but I don't expect anything of them that I wouldn't hold myself to. And so I model it. I have anger that's so big I don't know what to do with because I didn't have a parent doing this work with me. I have anger that's big enough that sometimes I'm like, I am getting so, I'm feeling so much anger right now in my body. I feel like I can't even make good decisions anymore. Here's what I'm going to do. And I'm going to be like, 
either it's something in front of them like I'm gonna like be moving my feet I'm gonna feel my feet while I'm standing here with you because holy moly the way you are screaming at me is overwhelming me quickly and I'm struggling to keep up I'll be honest I don't want to tell my children that they're too big for me, but I'm also not afraid to be like, this is big for me. Because guess what? Sometimes things feel big and you need to do something about it. I don't. And I've seen that too, where parents, and I've had this experience of that like grin and bear it through the tantrum because you don't want to turn away from your child, thus teaching them that their feeling was too big to be held or seen. And I think the way that you get to honor your needs, right? You get to honor, this is too big for me, though, is you take responsibility. I never tell my child, you're making me so mad, I need a break. I say, just like I would say to him, you feel anger in your body, it's yours. What are you going to do with it? So when I'm angry, did he, did he invite me into it? Sometimes, just like Milo does to him. But I'm going to say, there is so much anger in my body right now. It feels hot and fast, and I kind of feel like I'm going to catch fire. Okay. I know this anger is mine. I know you're angry at the same time, but the anger I'm feeling is all mine. I am going to step outside. I need to go take a breath. I'm not angry with you. I'm just holding this anger. I'm going to go outside for like 30 seconds, and I'm going to come back because... Honestly, I'm worried I'm going to say something unkind to you, and I wouldn't even mean it, and I would regret the hell out of it. So I'm going to go take a breath. I'm going to come back in a second when I have worked with this anger a little bit, and I am able to be more responsible with it because I'm getting to the point where I'm going to say something irresponsible. And I do. But then I come back, and I say things kind, and I handle it, and I do my job for him. And do I know for certain that he's not integrating that as I'm too much for my mother? No, I don't. He's not done growing yet, so I can't (laughs) ask him. But I will say I think – I will say he never is worse off than when I left. I'm better off than before I left. And I'm also an authentic, genuine, integral connection with my child. And even if I were to sit there and grin and bear it while he rages, if I'm sitting there and I am betraying my no that whole time in service of him, I don't think there's any way he doesn't know it. My baby knows when I'm mad and he doesn't speak English. There's no way my six and a half year old has lost his connection with me to the point where he doesn't know I'm faking it. And you know how you can tell is because if you're sitting there in inauthentic space with your child, they will push you until you meet them. Nothing pisses a child off more than you acting like you're calm when you're not. How do they push you into integrity? Because that's what our kids are here for. They are to reflect and force us into higher and higher and higher levels of integrity. If your child is angry and you start to feel angry back, And you, you know, there's one thing to control yourself and it's another to deny yourself. If you're in a place of disassociation and self-denial, 
How is your kid going to respond? They're going to energetically feed off of that and they're going to hit you with even more anger. They're going to throw so much anger at you until you are forced to reckon with what you're holding inside. Now that can look one of two ways. That can look like they reflected so much anger back at you, you're now snapping back in your rage. Or you can take that invitation for what it is, an opportunity for integration and integrity. You can take that and you can own it. And you can say, yeah, I feel angry and here's what I'm going to do about it. In that you're protecting yourself. You're protecting the energetic space that you as a mother are holding your children in. Your children are housed within you. Their auras are housed with you until age seven. Not to mention the co-regulation with nervous systems goes far beyond language. There is no avoiding the fact that your babies feed off of you. So while you can sit there and disassociate and pretend, they're not. They don't. You might disembody and disassociate to avoid those big feelings. But as you do, you're actually leaving your kid there to be all by themselves. And the fact that your body is technically in the room doesn't mean a damn thing. Yeah, they know you're pretending if you're pretending. And it's also an opportunity to model healthy, controllable anger. Mm -hmm. It's perfect. Yeah. And so they see it. And it's really effective. It can be really quick right? Like you can, you can do some of these regulation things in front of them where you can step out to do it, but being willing to set boundaries around your own wellness, don't you want your children to learn that? If you're raising daughters, you want to model it. You want to show them what is motherhood without martyrdom. And if you're raising sons, I want to show them the same thing. My boys are never going to watch their wives martyr themselves because they don't watch it. So regardless of how my daughter-in-laws are being raised right now and what kind of model their mother is giving them and what kind of pain they inherited just like I did from my mother, my boys are going to be a safe invitation for her to unwind that because my children will never sit there and expect the woman of the house to martyr herself at the feet of everyone else. They don't know what that looks like. So there will be no room for that in the homes that they create. And the fact that I'm raising boys that are strong and powerful and will go out and use that power in the world that they inherently have by being men means that they get to go create homes where this doesn't happen. They'll marry women who are good to them because they will only tolerate people who are good to them. And they will marry women that they have such desire to be good to because they know that that's what mothers deserve. It's painful for me to say I have to go. I don't want to. That's okay. I know. But leave it new I know, one. but I don't have to. I, I mean, I have to, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't want to. But can can we just do like a closing out? Like mm-hmm. uh, anything you want to say to parents in the trenches or? I think I would just, I would say to like trust your role as the mother whether you're raising boys or you're raising girls, trust your role as the mother. They were given to you. You were chosen for them. And every bit of what is happening for you is correct. The edges, 
the hardness, the bits that are hard to swallow, it's all correct. If it feels foreign, if it feels uncomfortable, if it feels painful, that's your blessing. That's your gift. And so if your child, if you are in a place where, you know, in regards to boundaries, you feel like your child just pushes and pushes and pushes and pushes, thank you to that child for showing you all the places that you don't honor your no. Thank you to that child for bringing you there because once they do, you get to find how brilliant your yes is. You get to find how safe no can feel. It's a gift to you as much as it is to them. It's a gift to you as much as it is to them. And it might be painful to get there, but it it only is as painful as you make it be. Trust that they are yours. Trust that you are theirs and that your innate wisdom as their mother can't betray them. You're not going to harm them just by mothering them. You're not going to hurt them by guiding them. They need it from you, and you need it from them in turn. It's, it's all so correct and so yours. It belongs to you. So don't try to gaslight yourself or shame yourself mm, yeah. at all. <laughs>